We've seen the video clips of Russian tanks in Ukraine blowing up after being hit by various anti-tank guided missiles. Other reports say that Moscow has lost so many tanks that they're forced to pull obsolete models from reserve stocks and even museums. The conclusion in popular media is that the tank is dead, obsolete as a weapon of modern combat. But is that true? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, and at one time anyway, instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College and the Naval War College. This series of podcasts introduces enduring lessons of war, not so much for those who study war as a profession, but for anyone who wants to fulfill their role as informed citizens in our country's deliberations about war and peace, and particularly now, when the world is facing war again. To begin, I apologize for the long lapse in episodes. Summer is usually very hectic for me, and this one unusually so. I let regular production of these episodes slip. There is so much going on in warfare these days that there's no excuse for this. In my last podcast, episode 56, I argued that the laws and customs of war were still important in modern warfare and for some very practical reasons. Now, this is part of a larger concept that I'll present in the near future, that conventional warfare, sometimes called traditional warfare, is not a relic of history. Instead, it's alive and well, and may very well be as relevant as irregular warfare or insurgency in future armed conflict, if not even more important. For today, however, I'm going to limit myself to that centerpiece of major combat operations of the last century, the tank. The end of the tank has been predicted by military writers and theorists since about 1918 and the introduction of effective anti-tank rifles. Yet the tank is still here. At the end of World War II, the advent of nuclear warfare argued against the viability of all forms of conventional warfare, including the tank. Yet the tank is still here. In 1973, modern anti-tank guided missiles, or ATGMs, in the form of Russian Sager and American tow missiles, once again led to cries that the tank was obsolete. No one seems to have told the Israelis, the Syrians, or the Egyptians about that. And Israel, anyway, continues with the development and deployment of tanks particularly suited for their environment, and ATGM countermeasures such as reactive armor and the Iron Dome. In 1992, I found myself assigned to the 18th Airborne Corps for the first Gulf War. I was regaled with stories how the new anti-tank system, LOSAT, or line-of-sight anti-tank missile, was going to render all armor obsolete with rockets firing at Mach 5, punching through any armor without a chance for countermeasures. LOSAT never got deployed, but the tank is still here. But have things changed in this century, in this millennium? YouTubers and some podcasters seem to think so. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine resumed at the end of February, the Ukrainian general staff reports that almost 2,000 Russian tanks and 4,000 other armored vehicles have been destroyed. Now, that's the equivalent of about 40 U.S. brigade combat teams, or roughly the size of the entire active component of the U.S. Army. To do that, Ukraine has expended 10,000 ATGMs provided by the United States and the United Kingdom and an unknown number of Ukrainian-produced Stugna P and Kosar ATGMs. And that doesn't include the use of other short-range systems like the AT-4 and the Karl Gustav provided by Western militaries and Ukrainian-produced RPG-style weapons. But let's break that down some. 
In addition to tanks killed by anti-tank systems, it also includes non-combat losses where tanks and other vehicles were abandoned. Things like being stuck in the mud, maintenance breakdown, running out of fuel, and grand theft tank by Ukrainian farmers. Further, the 6,000 number may be inflated. It probably is as much as all such numbers are in war, so let's say half of that. Let's say 3,000 tanks and other armored vehicles were destroyed. Let's say that only a quarter of those were non-combat losses. It could be more, it could be less, but a quarter doesn't seem unrealistic, especially the stuck-in-the-mud part. This leaves us with about 2,300 armored vehicles knocked out. That's still impressive. But is that enough to say that modern ATGMs have made the tank obsolete, or at least obsolescent? If we discount Russian tank losses due to smaller systems like Carl Gustav and RPGs, then it takes a bit more than four ATGMs to knock out one Russian armored fighting vehicle. The Javelin costs $78,000 per missile, while the Enlaw is $40,000. Split the difference and say it costs $98,000 to knock out one Russian tank. The Russian T-80 is said to cost about $3 million. So even using four missiles to knock out one tank, or even five missiles, the cost-benefit analysis seems to favor the ATGM, and by quite a bit. But let's think about that some more. First, is what you see on YouTube an accurate representation? Some clips show secondary explosions from ammunition inside of the tank, sometimes with spectacular views of turrets flying high into the air. Many, however, show a nice explosion, but then quickly end or even show the Russian tank still moving. In some of these, the large explosion may be the explosive reactive armor on the tank doing what it's supposed to do, exploding and diverting the explosion of the ATGM warhead. In others, the explosion of the ATGM warhead may not have penetrated the armor envelope or failed to destroy anything critical in the tank. And, of course, you don't see YouTube video clips of the missiles that missed. But even for the ones that do show a catastrophic kill, what have the Russians done to make themselves easy targets? In other words, why haven't Russian armored attacks been more successful? Is that wholesale destruction unavoidable in modern combat? Let's take a step back to the beginning of World War II. After all, this is called the ancient art of modern warfare. Germany overran France in six weeks, and it was really decided after about two and a half weeks of fighting. But the French are said to have better tanks. They were better armored, roughly equivalent to firepower, and they had more of them, lots more of them, like one-third more tanks than the Germans had, not counting the British and Belgian tanks. The difference was not in the tanks, but how they were used. With some exceptions, the French looked at the tank as an infantry support weapon, just as they had in World War I. The Germans, on the other hand, saw tanks as a decisive maneuver arm supported by infantry. So does the tank support infantry, or infantry support the tank? Further, the Germans used tanks as part of a combined arms team, not only with infantry that could keep up with, support, and exploit the mobility and firepower of the tanks. It also included integrated application of artillery and air support. In fact, German success only came when their tanks acted as part of that integrated team, which, by the way, required air superiority, or at least denying the enemy command of the air. Without at least local air superiority, in most cases, the armor attack would fail. The same was true for Allied armored forces in North Africa and again after the breakout in Normandy. The Russians learned and applied the same lessons in their counteroffensives against the German army. And don't forget about the logistics necessary to sustain that armored attack. 
The German offenses in Russia and North Africa stalled and reversed as they reached the end of their supply line. The same was true even for the Americans under Patton in his dash across France. So, what have we seen in Ukraine? Well, one, the Russians attacked before securing air superiority. In fact, with the prevalence of UAVs, neither side can truly claim air superiority. Second, the Russians attacked with three days of supply and no resupply. Now, this has been standard for the Russian army for decades. After three days, the next echelon would continue the offensive with their three days of supply and so on. But there has been no second or third echelons and no resupply. Third, they attacked just before the spring thaw. Even in World War II, neither the Germans nor the Russians launched significant offensive operations in Ukraine between the beginning of March and the middle of May. The fields and many of the roads became sucking mud, stopping any tank in its tracks. After the first week of this invasion, Russian movement was limited to the road network. This caused a number of problems. First, the tanks became easy targets for those ATGMs. Next, it created a logistics nightmare as combat forces couldn't get off the road to allow the supply columns through. Do you remember the 40-kilometer-long column of vehicles that sat immobile on the road leading to Ukraine? Add to this poorly trained tank crews. The evidence of that poor training is that there has been no apparent use of the active countermeasures the Russian tanks have, in fact, that every modern tank has, such as smoke grenade launchers to obscure the tank as a target or confuse the inbound missile. Indicators of poor training also includes limited evidence of Russians using suppressive counterfire against ATGM launch sites. Even if such suppressive fire, coming from its onboard machine guns, for example, couldn't stop the incoming missile, that suppressive fire could ensure that there wouldn't be a second launch from that site. Finally, there is the reported problem that many Russian tanks did not have the explosive charges for their explosive reactive armor. This may have little to do with the training of Russian tank crews themselves and more to do with the systemic problems in the Russian army. None of these, however, are the fault of the tank. What is the fault of the tank is Russian tank design that stores ammunition in the turret floor, leading to truly catastrophic explosions. Now, that's not a problem inherent to tanks, however. NATO tanks typically are designed to shield the crew and key components of the tank itself from such secondary explosions. Not so Russian tanks, which seem to invite it. As I am recording this podcast, the ground is hard and Ukrainian terrain should provide some of the best maneuver possibilities in Europe and as good as almost anywhere else on this planet. Nonetheless, we don't see large sweeping armored maneuver by either side. Why is that? Well, I'm going to suggest here that, as has been discussed previously in these episodes, war is a continuation of politics. It may be politically unacceptable to accept risk or even the temporary loss of territory associated with such maneuver. Maneuver warfare will require you to weaken or even withdraw in one area so you can concentrate in another. Now, the Russians did that a little bit in withdrawing from the northern border areas to concentrate in the east, but the campaign in Donbass is more like World War I than World War II. Next, no one has air superiority. Armored formations are subject to being spotted and targeted by air power and long-range precision artillery. And until you can sweep the skies of the UAVs, they're going to be targets. More likely at this point, however, 
poor decisions early in the campaign led to casualties and supply shortages that might not allow for the sweeping armored maneuver used by the Germans and the Soviets in Ukraine in World War II. However, that's all just speculation on my part, and I don't really know the reason why we haven't seen large-scale maneuver warfare on the part of tanks. What I believe strongly, however, is that the tank continues to provide capabilities that no other combat system can provide. Mobility, precision firepower, tactical and operational flexibility, and it does that with credible levels of protection from a wide spectrum of weapon systems directed against it. Because of those capabilities, national militaries devote a considerable amount of their research, development, and weapons procurement to stop the tank. Tank development, in turn, works on the doctrine, tactics, organization, and training to mitigate the effectiveness of those anti-tank systems while exploiting the capabilities of the tank. For a more in-depth description of how the capabilities of the tank remain critical and can't be replicated by any other current weapon system, I encourage you to check out the video linked in the podcast comments. It's called, No, the Tank Isn't Dead, by someone who uses the nom de guerre, The Chieftain. In fact, I strongly recommend any of his videos if you want to learn more about tanks and armored combat. In Ukraine, the tank versus anti-tank contest seems to be clearly on the side of anti-tank. But there's much more than just what you see on YouTube or what the posters want you to see. The tank in modern warfare is no more obsolete than helicopters and jet fighters in face of anti-aircraft systems or infantry, which is vulnerable to everything on the battlefield. Whether or not the clips are an accurate representation of anti-tank weapons versus tanks, this may be more of a matter of poor tactics rather than obsolete equipment. The question is not whether the tank is obsolete. In my mind, the real question is why neither side is exploiting tanks to the full extent of their capabilities. In the next episode, I'll continue to look at traditional forms of warfare in the 21st century. So come back again for the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.